Blog Talk Radio. and thank you for joining us on Blog Talk Radio and Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some uh, information and current events and anything that uh, seems to pique the interest of uh, women who are interested in the uh, violence against women issue and uh, just interpersonal violence in general. And uh, today we are very fortunate to have a wonderful speaker, a wonderful guest with us. And my name is Heather Stark. I'm your host. I came, became interested in domestic violence field about 15 years ago, got a master's degree from the University of Colorado in their domestic violence program, and uh, currently am working on my dissertation for a Ph.D. in organizational psychology. So that's my background, and now let's get to the important person of our show, and that is Phyllis Frank. She's the Associate Executive Director of VCS of Rockland County, New York, and She's director of its social justice programs, and she really works against all forms of oppression, which fits right in with our show. And one of the things uh, that you're going to talk about today with us, Phyllis, is that you really have a goal to change the practice of court-mandated offender uh, accountability. So in other words, when somebody goes to court and he is convicted, and I use he because that's the majority of the people, uh, is convicted of um, uh, domestic violence, Usually, they're given a deferred sentence, unless they have a long string, and they are told to go to some sort of program. Some courts or, uh, order anger management programs. Some courts order uh, perpetrator treatment programs. And if they successfully complete that program, then um, the court will just erase that conviction. The studies show that those uh, studies that, that those uh, intervention programs are not terrifically effective. So, Phyllis, tell us why you came to this point in your life and, and what's your background in dealing with perpetrator programs. I'm happy to, and I'm delighted to be here today. Uh, my entry into the world of ending violence against women really began with the beginning of the second wave of the feminist women's movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s. At that time, there was no domestic violence movement. The words domestic violence barely existed, and violence by men against intimate partners could hardly be found in the journals of those days. Uh, I was there for the formation of the New York State Coalition Against Domestic Violence as women all across the country and certainly across our state were beginning to speak out about the experience that safety at home was not a reality. Some women said they felt safer on the streets since many were being abused by the men who were their husbands who were supposed to love and care for them. Mm -hmm. uh, early in the uh, battered women's movement, as it was called at that time, there were many who were saying, we can and must offer services to women in crisis, but if we want to end domestic violence, don't we need to deal with the perpetrators? And uh, it was really that idea that gave birth somewhat prematurely, I believe, to the uh, idea of batterer or perpetrator programs. Um, I began the first batterer program, which is what we called it, in the state of New York in 1978. I've been told that we were probably the third or fourth oldest in the country uh, at that time, starting that early. And um, the reason I believe that I was encouraged to start this program by the women who were forming the Battered Women's Services and Coalitions is that there was a sense of trust that I would be listening to the collective wisdom of the Battered Women's Movement so that programs for perpetrators would... Um, would least harm or, or least damage uh, the work that the battered women's movement was doing at the time. So that's kind of a bit of a long-winded uh, story of how I got into it, Heather. 
<laughs> well, I appreciate that story. Um, I did a little research on this, and it looks like a, a thing called the Duluth model or the Duluth curriculum is the model that's used for batter treatment programs. And I am not sure exactly what that is. I know that you're, uh, you work with the New York model. Could you talk right. a little bit about the difference between those two models? Cause I, I, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the controversy involved in, in right. battery treatment. Right. I, so, I first this model, what is that? I want to lift up the work of Ellen Pence and Michael Paymar, who were the, the, the people who really put together what was the Duluth model. And the Duluth model really referenced coordinated community response, at first coordinated criminal justice response to domestic violence. I believe it was in the middle 1980s that it was clear that police, probation, prosecutors' offices, courts were not acting in concert to each other. And it was the Duluth model that said we all needed to interface and to make sure that we were giving a consistent message in our communities. Uh, the perpetrator program, the batterer program that came out of that was was really not the key issue, although the curriculum created for that batterer program, which was sold at the time across the country, became what was known as the Duluth model. And the Duluth model, again, had to do with the material, the curriculum that was being taught within those perpetrator programs. So what was the curriculum? Was it anger-based treatment, or what, what, what was that curriculum? What did they work on when they, went to, uh, when they uh, created a batter's program based on the Duluth curriculum? Um, very brilliantly, they defined domestic violence as a pattern of an abuse of power in order to control that men would be using against women, a pattern of abuse of power in order to control. And Ellen Pence, I believe, was the person who sat with groups of women in focus groups, uh, kind of gleaning from them their own experiences that were then put down on what is known across the country as the power and control wheel. And that... Mm -hmm. That wheel has slices of like a pie, and each of the slices speaks to the different experiences that women had that their partners were using to control their lives. The whole thing was held together by around the outer rim, it would say physical and sexual assault, because that's what kept it all together. But within the pie, there would be these, again, these different slices it could be economic abuse, it could be using the children, it could be emotional abuse, psychological abuse. And the curriculum had to do with talking about each of those slices, usually for two or three sessions at a time, uh, in the hopes that exposing to the men what it was they were doing and what they would need to do to do something differently would result in their ending their disrespect and mistreatment for women. Yeah, I'm a lay person when it comes to treatment programs, but that doesn't sound terrifically effective from what I know about abusers. Well, They're the reality happy. is across the country, and science now clearly backs this up, that the likelihood that a man who goes through any batterer program is going to end all forms of abuse and become respectful of women in general and his partner is negligible. It's not, it, it's not a result that happens in any significant proportions at all. Well, and I was reviewing some of the studies, and the studies back you up on that one. Uh, apparently yes. it's just, you know, there are a few scattered uh, small studies that showed some uh, increase in or some decrease in recidivism, um, reoffending. But most of the studies are uh, showing that there's really no difference at all uh, in recidivism. That's the, that is the overwhelming evidence, and I also want to help everyone to understand that many studies are assessing recidivism. Recidivism means if he is rearrested or if he comes again to the attention of the system. 
we know from the stories of hundreds and thousands of women that when a partner is uh, controlling them, they may do so in ways that are absolutely legal. So though he may not be back in a jail or rearrested for uh, physically assaulting her, his ability to keep her controlled may not have lessened at all. So from her perspective, she has still lost her freedom and cannot be who she is. Yeah. We have a caller already, Phyllis, and before we get to the difference between the New York Duluth mo- curriculum and the New York model, let's take our first caller. Caller, yeah. are you there? Caller, are you there? Uh, yes, Hello. Heather, I'm here. This is Charlotte Riggs. How are you? Well, hi, Charlotte. Charlotte has been on our program, actually, Phyllis, <laughs> and uh, so she's a good friend of this show. What, what, what's up? What question do you have this morning, Phyllis? Or Charlotte, I'm sorry. I'm my okay, I'm going to say Phyllis. Okay, my question is, um, being a woman who is a, a person who was a victim of domestic violence, uh, Miss Phyllis, in a way... It almost appalls me that a woman would speak to try to get organizations and stuff together for a man, but the only reason it doesn't is because I agree with you they do need help. But with my 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 thing happening in the 70s, the um, early 80s when, uh, you're right, there was no such thing as domestic violence, I wasn't able to get any help. But I think that the men should be met with swift justice. I think they should be locked up. I think they should be locked away, and I think if they get any help, it should be in jail. Because Charlotte, more yes, ma'am. I, let me tell you my response, and I, I love your question, Charlotte. I don't believe they need help. I believe they need to be stopped. Yes, and that okay, that sounds better. To needs me. to be stopped yes. with swift justice, so that when they are appearing within the criminal justice system, we ask that courts use the most serious penalty possible at the earliest possible moment to give the message that this behavior, these criminal acts are not tolerated in our communities. What we want the courts to do in terms of a batterer program is when there is, and New York it's called, an adjournment in contemplation of dismissal or a conditional discharge, that there be an additional condition that he attacks that he attend a program, and that he be held accountable to attend it according to the policies and practices of the program. The key word is accountability. And in New York, judges who use this program are told, unless there is a consequence, an additional consequence, if he doesn't comply with the program requirements, don't send him at all, because that would make a mockery of the order in the first place. So I agree with you. The problem is that many men do not commit acts serious enough according to the criminal procedure laws to be incarcerated. And for those well, who psychological, do not... psychological abuse is not illegal. I mean, it, it, you can't be prosecuted in many states for any kind of psychological abuse. It has to be physical in order and to be... Charlotte, please know that the vast majority of men who are abusing women in the United States of America and across, well, let's just stay in our country, are doing so in ways that are not illegal. So when we talk about perpetrator programs and put all of our energy in terms of ending domestic violence or a good portion of it into perpetrator programs, we're not looking at the very big picture And the big picture is that men are disrespectful to women and mistreat women who are intimate partners across this land. And what are we going to do to stop that? Well, one thing I would like to say is that I'm a woman who killed my husband. I did time for it. I, uh, it was, um, it was because I couldn't take the beatings anymore. So one thing I'll say about that is I don't know about the research that you get, but yeah. I think that at any time that a man is usually emotionally abusive or verbally, there's the physical in there, and sometimes the women don't admit it. Now, looking right. at it from a woman's side, um, I think that, like I say, I like the swift justice part because it could save a man's life because I'm right now 
at a point in my life where if a man hit me one time, I would kill him. So there's there's women who have been through that who don't want to go through it anymore. And so I look at it like I'm almost scared to date because if it happens, I know how I'm going to react. I'm going to I'm going to react with swift justice. So you I would know, rather Charlotte, see the courts do it. Charlotte, in New York, there was a hearing in the 1980s, I believe 1983 or 85, at Bedford Hills uh, Prison in New York, which is a maximum security women's prison. And it, it was a speak-out from the women who were incarcerated for ho- uh, acts of homicide or manslaughter against their intimate partners. And one woman after the other spoke, and each one had been horribly assaulted and beaten and tortured by the men who were their partners. Many had sought help and were turned away. And what they ended up doing was to save their own lives, and yet they were incarcerated, typically with sentences longer than any men had ever gotten for similar crimes for very different reasons. So I, I resonate with your experience. Thank you. Charlotte, and thanks so much. And so I just much. wanted you to understand. Thank you. Yeah, ahead, thank I'm you, sorry. Charlotte. Good to hear from you, and uh, good good luck with your work and, and your continued success in your work. So thanks, Charlotte. And, okay, uh, you guys have a good rest of your radio show. I'm going to listen to it, and thank you, Miss Phyllis, for explaining some things to me. My pleasure. Okay, bye-bye now. Thank you, now. Charlotte. Right, okay, thanks, Charlotte. Um, Phyllis, I yes. just love uh, Charlotte's openness about how she feels, um, yes. and I imagine that there are a number of women out there who feel the same way. Um, well. One of the things that the treatment programs don't seem to do, at least from what I've seen, now I could be way off on this, is that you can't teach empathy, can you? And it seems to me that the model that we were talking about with the Duluth curriculum, it's like if I can tell you how bad you are and how awful what you've done is, then you'll have a, 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 a spasm of conscience and, and change your behaviors. And that doesn't well, sound know, like I, very... I only wish it did uh, help. I do not believe that it does. I believe the science says that it does not. And given all of that, the idea of a New York model batterer program is not a treatment program per se at all. What it is is it offers to the courts an additional sanction to use in the graduated sanctions the court already has for those who are whose crime doesn't warrant a more serious penalty, which could be incarceration, that at least along with any other, anything else that's happening, that they be ordered to 26 or 52 sessions of uh, the New York model batterer program. The program is about accountability. The program is the court's way of saying, I am going to enforce that you do this as a result of what you did to somebody else. And our job at a New York Model Batterer program is to inform the participant from the moment he is ordered to us about what it is that he will have to do in order to comply with his court's order. We have very clear, uh, delineated um, policies and practices that we read aloud to everyone who is ordered in the language of his birth or the one that he's most comfortable understanding Um, And then it is our job when we run the program, while we are presenting the most up-to-date information on domestic violence and how to end it in our country and on our globe, while we are presenting that information, we do so in a manner that adheres respectfully to the policies and practices that we've set. And a key in the uh, New York model is treating each and every man who attends our program with the same respect that we would want to be treated if we ourselves were in the program. And that's because, um, Heather, if I can, I want to say who are the offenders? Who are the perpetrators? Yep. Well, and I I think that a lot of us have this notion that offenders have to be mean guys that they're running around and, and if you meet somebody in a store or something and he seems to be a real mean guy, then he must be, you know, chances are he's a he's an abuser. But that certainly is not the case. Uh, who are the perpetrators of domestic violence? 
you know, I, I mean to say this very tenderly. The men who are caught are simply representative of the entire cross-section of men in the country. Uh, we say that men who are abusing intimate partners uh, are our fathers, brothers, neighbors, colleagues, and friends. They're from every walk of life. They have been religious leaders and political leaders, and they have been, as I said, from every corner of our community. The ones who get caught are very often people who are more likely to be caught up in the criminal justice system. But the men who actually are doing these acts come from every place. Any stereotype one has about men who are disrespectful and mistreating intimate partners falls apart when looking at the realities. So when we run our programs, respect for the participants Though each one of them has likely done a very heinous act against an intimate woman partner, that is not all of who they are. They are also someone's son, someone's brother, someone's uncle, etc. Well, I'm glad you explained that because it, the other thing that I've noticed is that a perpetrator can have a very different personality in public. Uh, a perpetrator can be a, a wonderful person to many, his family, his friends, and his uh, extended family, but when he's in his castle, so to speak, very different personality. So, well, you know, every now and then somebody will say to me, you know, well, um, uh, abusers, uh, you know, that he's a nice guy. And I'll say, well, yeah, he's a nice guy except to the person he's abusing. And that is that is exactly the case. I remember uh, I keep threatening to write a book called But He's Such a Nice Guy. And um, there was a, a time where I heard many people talk about very famous men who were philanthropists within their own communities, incredibly charitable, one of the first women in the battered women's program in my own community in Rockland County, New York. I was on the board. I'm a founding board member of that shelter. And on my first visit there, one of the women in the shelter was the wife of my pediatrician. And I did thorough thorough investigating and interviewing when I was pregnant of the pediatricians in the community, insisting that I find one who would be respectful, respectful towards me. Remember, this was in the late 60s, yeah. and um, women were saying, treat me with respect, I'm a full adult. And yeah. here in that same shelter was his wife. So to me, he was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh we have another caller, Phyllis. Let's let's break and see what this caller's question is. Hold on. Caller, are you there? I guess our caller is not there. Okay. Oh. Well well, um one of the things that I wanted to bring about or talk about too is the controversy in treatment programs. Uh, I did a lot of reading and I've done a lot of listening and it sounds to me like a number of groups are very anti-treatment programs. They think that they are sexist, that they are disrespectful, that they are um, uh, just uh, uh, victim or, or that, that, that the perpetrator is actually the victim. Uh, how do you address those criticisms? Well, those criticisms are real for many programs across this country. That That's kind of sad, but it's true. It's not true for all programs. I think many batterer programs are done by very well-intended people who are trying their best to make a difference. I do believe that the vast majority are ill-informed, that if you define domestic violence, uh, in the way that we do in the New York model and from the perspective of the uh, battered women's movement, certainly in the state of New York and across the country, it is not about a, a subset of men who are being abusive, but you look at the history of the United States and almost every country on the globe, there is a history where men's ownership of women, 
where men's rights and responsibilities to control women and their children is a very clear part of where we all come from. That we consider that in many ways the default position for men and women growing up in a patriarchal system, and if you look at our at our Congress, if you look at the Senate, if you look at uh, corporations, if you look at universities, we still live in a system that is completely dominated by men. And with that domination, the, the history and the legs of sexism remain alive, and that is a, 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 a disrespect towards women and the men across the country, many of whom are my colleagues in the National Organization for Men Against Sexism and many other pro-feminist men's groups across the country, uh, recognize that they have a, an ability to make a choice to work with women and treat women respectfully. The New York I've model. encountered a lot of men who, uh, once they had daughters of their own, started realizing what their daughters were going to be up against, and they started taking a much more um, uh, active role in uh, teaching respect and, and uh, being concerned about domestic violence and those issues. So exactly. I want to go to a caller again, uh, Phyllis, if you don't mind. Sure. And caller, are you there? Caller? I don't know whether there's something wrong with our lines or whether our caller just keeps hanging up, but uh, in any event, we will uh, talk more right now about the difference between the New York model and the traditional model, the Duluth model that we talked about. What's the difference? The New York model is about accountability. As I said, our we serve the courts. We give the court an opportunity to use our program as an additional disposition the court agrees that if the person does not comply with all of the policies and practices of our program, that we will dismiss him, send him back to the court, and there will be an additional consequence. When the person is in the program, as I said earlier, we provide all of the information that any man in that program would need to make personal transformation a possibility and a reality. We are very clear that whether or not he uses the material to do anything of the sort is totally and completely up to him. Our goal is to make it possible for him to comply with the requirements by making it very clear to him what it is that he has to do when he is with us. In that, we are very different from programs that believe that this is a mental health issue or a treatment issue. It is no more a treatment issue than racism is, sexism or heterosexism. This is not about treatment. This is a social justice issue. This is an issue that can be addressed and must be addressed by changing laws and then changing the, the absolute inequality that exists and really replaces it, this is where we are heading for our future, where women and men are equally valued in our country. That well, is the direction that yeah. the New York model is a small part of. Okay. So if I am a perpetrator, if, if yes. I um, um, was arrested for domestic violence, and yes. the judge says, okay, I'm going to send you to this program, um, to uh, Phyllis's program. What yes. is he likely to expect? Uh, what, what will he expect? What will he experience there? Well, the first thing that happens is that the judge will give him uh, usually two business days to call and make a registration appointment. So that's the first level of accountability. When he calls, he's told on the telephone when his appointment is, what paperwork he will need to bring with him in order to assess his fee, and he, uh, an appointment is set up. When he attends his registration appointment, someone greets him and takes his demographic information and then spends the rest of the time letting him know what those very policies are. And let me tell you a, a few of them. 
Heather. Each participant is told that he needs to arrive for his uh, session on time, meaning if he is not there when the session begins, the door is closed and he is marked absent. He is given what our absence uh, policy is. In a 26-session order, he is allowed to be absent three times. If he's absent a fourth time, he's dismissed and sent back to the court. The absences, of course, need to be made up. He needs to bring his fee. Whatever fee is assessed, he needs to bring it with him each time, and he needs to bring his fee card with him, which we give him so that the instructors know exactly how much money to collect from him. He signs a roster, and then with a group as small as five or as big as 40, um, there are typically two instructors, and each session has a topic or a, um, a bit of a film could be shown, something from current events, or a topic that has been chosen. Uh, topics can be uh, varying. It can, have to do, it can be the definition of domestic violence. What do we mean when we say domestic violence? Do we only mean physical assaults? It could be a topic about parenting. What is the impact on children when men are abusive or brutal to the woman who is the children's mother? So on and so forth. The, the discussions are usually extremely interesting and engaging. Uh, very often people are surprised when the hour and a half is over. Um, and the sessions always begin on time and end on time. Does that give you a little flavor of it? Yeah, um, one of the things that one of the questions I have about any kind of uh, perpetrator uh, treatment program is, they for the most part perpetrators don't think they did anything wrong. So well, if in, a, in a New York model, we don't talk to them as in we know what you did and we have no argument with you about your own sensibility about what you did. Like a good college class, we talk about topics and we talk about domestic violence not pointing to this is what you did because the truth is, Heather, we don't, in a New York model, we don't know what they did and it really doesn't matter to us what they did. It matters to them. And with us not pointing at them, there is no need for them in our sessions to be defensive because it doesn't matter to us. We say to them, like one of the men once said, um, well, don't you care whether or not I'm, you know, going to be mean to my wife again or be bad to her? And one of the instructors very, very tenderly said back to him, you know, the truth is whether or not you are abusive to her doesn't affect us. It affects your life your family, and your children. You have to figure out what you're going to do with this information. Would we be thrilled if every man who came into this program or any program or any man in our community decided to be respectful from this point forward to his partner? Yes, it would be wonderful. But you have to decide whether or not it would be wonderful enough for you to do it. I keep coming back to this thing, though, that most of the perpetrators that I've, I have read about and encountered really don't see anything wrong with their behavior, especially if there was no uh, hitting involved. And um, if, there, if I don't see anything wrong with my behavior, if you're telling me about all these other ways to behave, I'll just kind of go poo-poo, I was right. Um, well, I, I did. Let me, Heather, I don't think that the men in the programs that I've run since the 1970s have not committed acts of physical or sexual assaults. Mm -hmm. The men who are committing, the men who are committing um, emotional or financial, or isolating their partners, may in fact not have any sense that they're doing anything that's harmful. As a matter of fact, I believe that many, many men who, will, who are in programs or who will never be in a program uh, have no sense that they are being disrespectful or abusive or hurtful to their partners 
And when their partners tell them that they are, things like you're being mean to me or that hurts me or don't do that, men say often, you're so sensitive, I'm not doing anything wrong, what's the big deal, I'm only teasing, I'm only making a joke. And that's how sexism works. In a patriarchal culture, men literally have an, often an unconscious sense of superiority so that, and that also includes that they don't have to listen to women's voices when women define our own experiences. So if I say you're hurting me and you say no, I'm not, you've just redefined what I've told you. I've just mm-hmm. told you that you are. Yeah. So these are the kinds of things we actually talk about in our program and when we do training, because this is material that everybody should hear. Absolutely. Do you do uh, any work in your programs with teenagers? Um, We will accept orders to our program as young as 17. Younger than that, we get involved in parental consent and a whole rash of things. So, no, we have not had anyone younger than 17 in our program. In terms of speaking to schools and to young people about sexism and patriarchy and entitlement and male privilege, uh, for both boys and girls, men and women, we are extremely supportive of this kind of material and material about racial injustice be included in curriculums and and, and so that children and students, graduate students, college students, so that this becomes everyday fair. Because I think what you said is crucial. If you're part of, and I'm going to use a little jargon here, Heather, the dominating group, which in it would be men, not women, which would be so-called white people, not people of color, when you're part of a dominating group, you're often unconsciously acting out sexism or racism and don't even know it, and when you're told, you don't listen. Mm -hmm. Because you you don't have to in this country. So should we be teaching about this? Yes. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. Well, we have a caller. Let's try this caller and see. Caller, are you there? Caller, are you there? Well, it must be something wrong with our lines here, I guess, because I'm not able to get these callers on. Um, Let me try a different button here. Caller, are you there? These are different phone numbers, so I'm assuming that it's something wrong with the system, and I'm so sorry about that because I would love to hear comments. Um, We have a um, uh, string of callers there, so maybe if, uh, uh, gosh, let me try one more time. I'll do this clicking, and then I'll do that clicking. Caller, are you there? Can you hear me? Mm. Nope, nope. Sorry Sorry about that, Phyllis. Um, We're missing out on a number of callers here, and... uh, I'll have to talk to the engineers about that and see what the deal is. And meanwhile, I apologize um, to all of our callers. Meanwhile, uh, Phyllis, I would like to know about training of the, um, uh, in the perpetrator programs, you have leaders of that program, right? How do they get trained? The, um, in the training that we are doing consists of an hour and a half training supervision, collegial supervision session that we run once a week, every week for all of our instructors. In other words, very few people learned anything about issues of oppression of any substance in their school training, whether you have a PhD or you're barely a high school graduate. This is not information that is taught in depth as yet in schools, although there are many movements to change that. So that what we do is um, meet with all of the instructors and present the very same material that they are going to have to become conversant with in order to do the instructing in these sessions. Are there any requirements? Uh, what, yeah. are, what are the 
prerequisites, if you will, for being a trainer in your program? There are um, there are no educational prerequisites because we've learned that that has not helped anything at all. It, it all it really requires is, is that somebody is available to attend the training an hour and a half a week every single week, and that they be open and willing to learn and to do the exploration within themselves. Because key and crucial to this work is authenticity. You can't read material off of a piece of paper about sexism and racism and heterosexism and ableism and other issues of oppression. You need to understand it deeply yourself. So we are constantly challenging ourselves to see in what ways are we part of the dominating group and who do we need to listen to in order to get feedback about whether or not we're manifesting our privilege even in the work that we do with each other. So um, the training is crucial. So do you do uh, any kind of studies, any kind of measurement on your graduates, if you will, um, on, on whether we, we were talking about recidivism before, so as a measure? We have something that we call the outcome study that we're waiting someday to to actually get funded to see how it's coming what we do is we assess what happens to the participants who do not comply with our program requirements and what we are assessing is what the court does next because when we began creating the New York model and we traveled around the country and I'm now talking about the early 1990s I would travel around the country and go to domestic violence conferences and especially to battered women domestic violence programs and ask what happens in your community when the judges order a man to go to a batterer program and he doesn't go or he drops out. And the answer was unanimous across the country. The answer was nothing, yep. which meant that the court system was complicit in making a mockery of even the women's experiences that were bringing these men to court in the first place. So what we do in our outcome study is we want to assess whether or not the court is taking seriously those men who are flying in the face of the court order to attend the program. If a man actually has complied with his order, as far as we are concerned, he has done what the court required him to do. The idea of whether or not he will whether he or not he is continuing to be controlling and abusive to his partner is not anything that we have knowledge of nor could assess. Whether or not he's complied with his court order is key. Uh, if I can tell you a quick story, there is a judge in one of our communities who was using the program beautifully, and she said to uh, a man in court one day, I'm ordering you to 52 sessions of the VCS domestic violence program for men, and this is but one of several conditions that I am putting on you. And um, I truly won't know whether or not you are using harsh and abusive language to your partner or whether or not you are passing closer to her than you're supposed to at her job but I will know whether or not you are attending this program. And that won't tell me that you're not being abusive, but it will tell me that you're listening to that piece of my order. If you don't do that, I will have no faith or confidence that you're doing anything, and I will have you back here, and you will not have the opportunity to attend a program again. The next penalty will be harsher. That's a judge who understands how to use the program. Yeah. Well, it almost sounds like some of these programs you're you're trying to um, break control patterns. Does that is that a leap on my part or No, it is not a leap because in the in the program that we run and this is really a just a, a stunning piece that you've picked up Heather is that we model within that program that we are the authority and we are in charge and we do so with great respect they find, the participants find very quickly that they are not in charge. So if one is uh, being insulting or inappropriate in the session, and one of the, by the way, one of the policies is that you need to be respectful from the time you enter our premises, whether you're on the phone or in person, until you leave, 
You must be respectful to all, other people in the program, staff, faculty, everyone. Um, so when a man is, when men are in the room, it is our job to be respectful, but to also hold them to that limit. Sometimes a man will be obnoxious or by the way he's sitting or the way he's talking or talking in a tone of voice that is disrespectful or intimidating. And instructors might say, um, John, if you continue in the way that you're behaving, it's, uh, it's clearly your way of saying you don't want to be here tonight since you did sign an agreement that you would be respectful. And um, should you continue, you will be asked to leave. And then, of course, the court would be notified. And the court would be notified immediately by the next business day. Now, very often that man will say, what? What am I doing? Mm -hmm. And instructors are known to say, um, if you don't figure it out, you'll likely do it again, and then you'll be asked to leave. And they go on teaching the class. Mm -hmm. You would be surprised what a huge percentage of men figure out what it was they were doing and stop doing it. <laughs> well, that, that's know, going back to our initial I have discussion. Evidence that uh, every man knows how to be respectful. They don't yeah. need lessons in how to be respectful. They need to be held responsible for their own behavior with a consequence for not being respectful. And I do have confidence that every man can be deeply respectful of the women in his life if he chooses to be. Well, but as I was going to say, when we started this conversation, we were talking about power and control. Yes. So in my experience with, with people in general, not just perpetrators, is that if you can't get power and control over yourself, or if you, you will take it where you can get it. So it seems the idea that, that a man loses control uh, has always been, from our perspective, half a sentence. When men behave in an abusive manner and people say they lost control, they usually mean he was losing control of her, yes. his wife partner. And when yes. he feels he's losing control of her, he ups the ante by becoming more threatening, screaming louder, or maybe using physical assault. So men are in control all of the time, Heather, of themselves. Sure. But when they, when they, for example, go into a court, suddenly they have some of their control chipped away at because the court has authority. The court has power. And, they and I would control. imagine that when the court sends them to a, a, a perpetrator program, perpetrator program has some power, has some control. And they do, I would... and I have visited programs that have, when men are acting insulting or abusive they, and intimidate other people or even the leaders, I've seen it happen, there's no consequence. And that wow. is a... In, to us, incredibly dangerous, ineffective, inappropriate. People come, they don't come on time. They don't pay their fee. There is no accountability. Uh, some programs think that talking about accountability means a man is accountable for what he's done. When we say accountability in the New York Model Program, Heather, we hold the man accountable only for things that we absolutely can hold him accountable for. We cannot hold a man accountable for, for not being mean or abusive to his partner. Why? Because we don't know how he's being when he's not yeah. with us. Yeah. I'm going to try one more time. Ever, ever the optimist here, I'm going to try one more time to see sure. if we can get a caller in, Phyllis. Let's see. Caller, are you there? Oh, yeah. this is so so disappointing. Oh, disappointing, well, yes. Yeah, I apologize to all of our callers out there because we have a bunch lined up and we are having technical difficulties. So um, what I'm thinking in the back of my head, Phyllis, is we're going to have to have you back sometime. I'd be um, more than happy to. <laughs> um, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about as well, Phyllis, is why perpetrators? There are so many ways that uh, you have been and could continue to be uh, helpful 
in um, uh, abating domestic violence. Why did you choose the avenue of working with perpetrators? Um, I said earlier that the batterer programs were born prematurely. I think they were born prior to our having a deep analysis about what domestic violence is. From our perspective, it is deeply rooted in history, laws, and culture of the United States of America. And as such, the default position for men is a position of superiority, whether it is conscious or unconscious. Given that, the numbers of men who at one time or another are disrespectful to women would be the vast majority, and I mean that unconsciously, not listening to women, not, not, not believing that women have as much capacity uh, to be in leadership positions in our world. Um, we didn't have that analysis. I think if we had that analysis, we would have put far more of our eggs in the social justice, social change basket than in the individual perpetrator, quote-unquote, treatment basket. I think it was an error. What has happened is that perpetrator programs have proliferated around the country, and sadly, in many cases, they are businesses, and it is a little too late to end them. Uh, I began early on, as I said, kind of pushed forward by the New York State Coalition and other women in the movement to say, all right, this is, seems like it makes sense. Why don't you do it and do it in a way that is ethical and moral and will always take leadership from the battered women's movement, which we have done and continue to do. If I were doing it again, uh, it would not, I would not do it this way, Heather. Really? Really. How would you I do would, it? I would say that, there would, that the court has enough sanctions available to it to use for those who are doing domestic abuse to the level of, that they are, which is criminal. I would put a lot of, a lot of money into community coordination and training so that, and activism so that judges and attorneys and prosecutors and probation and community corrections and parole and then moving out to churches and synagogues and temples and ashrams and hospitals and uh, public education, et cetera, began to have an analysis about the imbalance of power that eventually leads to domestic abuse and redress those imbalances of power in the same way that our country has to do this with racial justice, redress the imbalance of power between white people and people of color. Um, that's where I think the energy needs to be. and. Uh, I, that's where that's the direction. I mean, I've, certainly I've done and continue to do a whole lot of that, while creating this model called the New York model, that kind of undermines the idea that this is a problem of a few men who need to be fixed, but of yeah. a patriarchal system that needs to be equalized. Oh, very good. Um, I come back though to my notion that you know if I don't see anything wrong with my behavior. Even if somebody tells me that there's something wrong with it, I will. I might go through the motions of doing what I, they say I have to say, especially if they have the authority of a court. But I'm not going to really change my thinking just because somebody's telling me that this isn't isn't the right way to behave, especially if it works for me. You're right, and you know you're now talking about the vast majority of people in our country. I think. Uh, I could speak, you know, uh, in terms of racism, I considered myself anti-racist from the time I was born, but until I was way into midlife did I finally have a training uh, from organizers and activists called the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond out of New Orleans, Louisiana, who helped me to see what white supremacy really means, what white privilege means, that this country was built on the labor of enslaved peoples who were kidnapped here from from Africa, did I understand something that I had been denying? I thought I was already a wonderful anti-racist white person while really not listening to the history of the construct of racial justice, 
of racial injustice in this country. The same is true for sexism. So I asked, how did I finally hear it? And then spent the rest of my days working to earn the title or the label of anti-racist organizer. Um, how do men, like the men from the National Organization for Men Against Sexism, how did it happen that they began to recognize that they can't look at bad men, they have to look at all men, including themselves, and figure out how they're manifesting male superiority? And one way to do it is to listen to women. Listen and to I have to admire those men who do um, make that, that uh, leap and say, you know, what do I have to do to be better? Yes. Because, again, it's working for them. You know, the, I, I mean, why would I want to change if I'm in, you know, the, the power group and it's working for me? What's well, my motivation for change? And that's where we come to the courts, you know, where I courts... Would, well, the courts yeah. are only dealing with people who are coming to criminal acts. Exactly. I'm really now talking about, you know, I'm not part of the Ku Klux Klan and never was. I'm never, I've never committed an illegal act of racial injustice. But if you ask the women and men of color who have been around me for years, they can tell you long stories about how I have manif manifested white superiority obliviously. And when they, years ago, would tell it to me, I would go, no, I'm not, or you don't even know me, or how could you say that about me? So yeah. what made it that I was willing to hear something different? In addition to a phenomenal training from the earlier mentioned group, People's Institute, um, to a sense of breathing better when justice reigns, whether I'm part of the dominating group or the marginalized group, I have to take my place in the movement towards social justice. And I believe that the majority of people in the United States of America want the same as I do, even if it, even if it means looking at the ways that I benefit on the backs of others who don't benefit. But again, you know, I, I admire so much the men who are willing to to uh, face that reality, um, because it has to be a threat to their um, power status. It has it to is. be a threat. Yeah. And all of the all of the men that I know who are in this work, and there are hundreds and hundreds, uh, feel fuller, feel more fully human and more manly as a result of this social justice position than they did before, as do I in terms of racial justice. I want to just one more time go back to the courts. Um, why would a court, well, let me rephrase that. Would Is it more effective for a court to send somebody to jail or to send them to a perpetrator treatment program? If you have, if the man has committed a crime serious enough to be incarcerated, absolutely incarcerated, without a doubt, the law must, must be used to the extent that it can be used to say we take these crimes against women who are your partners or lovers or girlfriends seriously. They must use the court system. The programs are for the men who have not committed a crime serious enough to be incarcerated. Don't let them walk with a minor slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. Either yeah. if they have an, ace, uh, an adjournment or, or a dismissal, have the stipulation that they must do 52 sessions or 26 sessions at the very least of a court-mandated yeah. program, a program that will hold them accountable to policies and practices fairly and respectfully, giving them every opportunity to know what they need to know to turn their lives around should they choose to. And then our job is to create a world that makes them want to. Ah, on that note, I think we uh, have come to a place where we need to wrap up our show. Phyllis, it has been such a delight having you here. And I'm serious about coming back because we didn't really talk about a lot of the issues, and of course we were having our caller problem. So I would really like to invite you back, and, and we can I'll talk be, about I'll when. Invite me. I will be here. I promise. 
Okay. And one of the things that I usually do with our program is I try to wrap it up with a quote from somebody who has uh, wisdom and knowledge that I don't possess. And today that quote is from someone I do not recognize. It's uh, Manitonquat, so I'm assuming it's a Native American. And Manitonquat said, It is clear that the way to heal society of its violence and lack of love is to replace the pyramid of domination with the circle of equality and respect. I love it. Beautiful. Isn't that wonderful? It kind of wraps up what we had to say today. Phyllis, thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. And listeners, join us next week. We're going to have Barry Goldstein talking about lawyers and domestic violence. Join us next week.